Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest. He's returning, been here before, and people really enjoy him, so I'm glad he's back. Ernst, thanks for joining me, man. Thanks for having me on again, Oren. I'm looking forward to the chat. And just uh, just a little bit of context here for tonight's uh, broadcast here from uh, the dark continent is that I'm currently sitting in the middle of a rolling blackout. So that's why my lighting is a bit ominous. I'm using my backup uh, little battery light here. And then also my my internet modem is uh, hooked up to a small battery. But otherwise, it's pitch black dark out there. There's uh, There's no power in my entire area. Yeah, it's the uh, excitement of broadcasting from uh, South Africa, and we'll get into a lot of the implications of that here as we go along. I know that the organization you're a part of has a lot of different approaches to that kind of thing, so we'll, that'll certainly uh, work into our larger discussion. But the reason I wanted to have you on is there was this debate at the beginning of the year. A lot of people in our sphere probably saw it. It was Carl uh, Benjamin, uh, Sargon of Akkad, and Peter Hitchens. And they were going back and forth about uh, the future of Britain. Peter Hitchens, to his credit, has been saying for many, many uh, decades that Britain was in a very bad state, much worse than people understood, uh, that things like the Tory party were actually a great threat to Britain, not a, uh, not a vehicle for conserving it. And, uh, you know, he, again, in his defense, he, he was right about a lot of those things. But kind of his approach was, OK, well, this is over. This is done. There's there's nothing left to save. The only thing left to do now is leave Britain and start somewhere new. And Carl Benjamin took umbrage with that. And he said, you know, look, this is my home and I don't care how bad things have gotten, you know, whether you think they're in a fixable state or not my family lives here, my children live here, I want this for the next generation of Englishmen. And so they kind of had a back and forth and they, they've, they've kind of made up in certain ways since then. But the first thing I thought of was was your essay. You did an, an excellent essay in I Am 1776 about uh, kind of what it means to fight for your country when you need to leave and when you need to stay. You've thought about this kind of thing a lot. And so I wanted to have you on to talk a little bit about that subject. So I, I guess let's go ahead and start at the beginning. How does one know when it's time to leave a place where you know things have gone very, become very difficult, They've uh, not a place that maybe people want to live with their families? And when is it time to kind of settle in and fight for the place where you're from? Right. So I just wanted to quickly mention something that's uh, very ironic, specifically for my experience as a, a South African and Afrikaner, is the fact that the top destination where South Africans immigrate to is the United Kingdom <laughs> to yeah. flee from South Africa. So that's uh, just something that I found very funny regarding the context that you uh, that you gave before the conversation. Now, that whole question about when when's the time to move and when is the time to to hunker down and to fight for uh, something something bigger or towards an ideal this is something that uh, specifically afrikaners have been really fighting with and uh, thinking about for a very long time that's specifically why in my piece i use the history of the afrikaner specifically to convey my point all these different points in our history we've been I've been faced with that question many times over hundreds of years um just to name two major examples the the first time this will help answer the question is specifically with the great trek so in 1806 um you have uh, uh the you uh, you um 
English of the British Empire taking control of the Cape, uh, 1806, and uh, instituting a, a ruthless process of Anglicization and cultural suppression uh, there at the southern tip, there at the um, uh, Cape Colony. And uh, as empires tend to do, I think this is not something unique to South Africa, and that was the uh, primary inspiration behind the Great Trek, where my ancestors, the, the Boers, trekked into the unknown interior. They had decided that it was a time to move because they had, and uh, maybe to demonstrate the point of this is not just a, a move away for more material wealth or for more security or for better prospects. This is actually quite the opposite. They, they're moving for immaterial things. They're moving for things that can't be quantified. So they would have been far better off materially if they had stayed in the, in the Cape. Uh, under British rule, under British uh, um, uh, occupation. They would have had better business opportunities, better security, better infrastructure, better schools, better pretty much everything, service delivery, everything. And, and they chose to leave behind their farms, leave behind most of their belongings and trek into the unknown. This is during a time where there's very little known about what's, what's north, where are we going? Well, Anything's better than living here where we're being, our identity is being wiped out. So they were checking for something that you can't quantify, you can't put into, put a, a monetary value on. And the second example is the uh, uh, the example of not moving, but when it was a time to dig the first and the second. During that war, that's after the Boers had trekked into the interior. They had uh, established two fledgling republics, the Urania Freistaat and the Transvaal Republic. And those two republics then uh, discovered gold and diamonds. So once again, the eyes of empire fell on them. And uh, the British uh, pretty much uh, wanted that gold and that, uh, that di those diamonds. And uh, that leads to the, the breakout of the first and the second uh, Anglo-Boer War. And during that time, the Boers didn't move. They then decided now is the time to dig a trench, uh, quite literally. Um, so when faced with an existential crisis this time around they decided that this time they have to stay and fight but at both times it was an existential threat that needed an answer but both times they chose their identity and their culture and their community over material wealth over security over uh, prosperity if you will they chose something bigger or higher than themselves something that you can't really put into monetary value which i find very interesting which then leads to the to the answer to your question when is it time to move when is it time to dig a trench well i think that's going to be up to you about what you value and we can get into that into this chat about specifically what is of value but i think the crux of that answer to that question would be any one of your viewers personally asking themselves what do they value most in this life? What do they what do they value most in regard to their family? Do they value their house? Do they value their bank account? Do they value their their, their uh, history? Do they value their identity? Very long list of things that form a hierarchy in regards to what they value most. But they, that's the roots of it. They're going to have to ask that question every one of them personally to themselves. What do they value? And that's going to bring them much closer to the answer of whether it's a time to move or a time to dig a trench. Yeah, th there's a lot of good points there that I want to unpack. Uh, I think there's there's a lot of important stuff there. So the first thing you said is the you know the first place that so many Afrikaners want to leave to go to is the UK, right? And this very debate that has kind of spurred this stream was about the future of the UK, and so that brings up I think 
you know, we'll, we'll get to the other reasons why, but that brings up a really just a logistical question for a lot of people who would say, oh, you have to flee, you have to start something else, you have to start over, is, you know, there was a point at which the globe had places, you know, you could head to the heart of Africa, you could head, mm. you know, to, to, uh, to the new world, you could head westward and expand. Um, and people could escape this kind of thing. But it's increasingly clear that when you're fleeing one area, you're only heading to a place that's heading the same direction, but slower, you know, I, I know you've mm. said this many times, you know, you guys are a few decades into the future of much of the west and that's a difficult thing and for sure the, yeah it's uh it's the saying of uh, uh living somewhere where the future has already happened somewhere uh, it's like south africa the future has already happened somewhere like uh many european countries in the united states you're still living uh in a, a blissful uh past where you're still waiting for the future to happen but uh why would you uh, give up the opportunity to get a free glimpse into the future? I mean, that's the, the most perfect uh, opportunity. But there's another important point that you made there about in the past, there were places to to run to or to flee to. Uh, a good example is specifically um, uh, what uh, Alistair Sparks, a South African uh, political commentator, wrote about in uh, the early 90s. So he wrote then when uh, power, when uh, uh, the uh, 1994 elections were uh, on the horizon, he wrote about the, the cultural anxiety that he saw Afrikaners experiencing around him. And he himself wasn't an Afrikaner. He was an English-speaking South African. But uh, he understood the anxiety he wrote. He wrote in his book that uh, because what he saw around him, he just looked at his own experience and the experience of the Afrikaners. And he realized that should this 1994 experiment of new South Africa not work out, Alistair Sparks realized that he could emigrate to uh, as an English South African to any other country in the Anglosphere, whether that be Australia, New Zealand, Canada, England, and the like. And he would still be relatively at home in a community that speaks his language and largely shares his values and his culture and his British heritage with him. That's not the case with the Afrikaners. We have nowhere to go to. It's often a, a common misconception that uh, people just think we're just Dutchmen living here at the southern tip of Africa. It can't be further from the truth. We've very clearly and distinctly become our own uh, uh, cultural group and our own uh, group here at the southern tip of Africa, a, a folk, if you will. And uh, we don't have a, anywhere else where we can go where we will be surrounded by our people, people that speak our language and that share our culture. And a, a good example of that is where um, during the, the Anglo-Boer War, the Boer general um, Christian de Wet, um, I think it was Christian de Wet that said, um, let me just check here, uh, that said, Yes, that I would rather stand with my people on a dunghill than in a palace among strangers. So that's at the end, or near to the end of the, the Anglo-Boer War. And you have to understand it in the context as well of uh, nearing the end of the Anglo-Boer War, is that uh, you're, you're in a situation where your, your guerrilla fighters are fighting against this empire, against the existential threat, but your women and children have been put into concentration camps and they're dying at a rate where more women and children died during in those concentration camps, Boer women and children, than soldiers on both sides combined. And then the Boer resistance basically came to the conclusion that worth our extinction. Um, that was pretty much the conclusion that they came to. We have to surrender because if we keep fighting, we're fighting for our sovereignty, but there's not going to be any, any of our women and children left uh, if we do. 
so um once again that's uh that's the point that's uh, that they've reached and there's a great quote by Empia van Beek Lowe, one of the great Afrikaner philosophers that actually demonstrates this perfectly where he says as all as is always the case in South Africa it is the Afrikaner who is once again in the trenches because of him because for him it is not primarily about profit or loss but about survival or ruin so again you're at this point where it's not just a case about deciding should I go to somewhere where I'm going to have better opportunities or not better safety or not it's a question of am I willing to move somewhere and my identity going extinct? Am I willing to uh, be part of that generation that foregoes our Afrikaner identity and becomes and assimilates into a new one abroad? Yeah, I think it was really important too when you were talking about like, look, sometimes you might have to move to preserve your people and your way of life. It's it's not always about just the staying. It's 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 not focusing on the material. And that's really important because, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people today in America have this narrative of the land of opportunity, which it certainly was like that. It's a, it's a real part of the American experience was the people who better their fortune and, and materially prospered, you know, by taking chances in America. But people also, I think, then forget that so many of those who fled to America were themselves attempting to protect their identity, were saw themselves as persecuted, saw their way of life as being eliminated in other parts of, you know, Western society at the time. And they wanted to move somewhere you know, to, to protect that as well. And so that focus and that understanding of, you know, the, the material might be part of the story, but really at the end of the day, whether you're moving or staying, it's the protection of a way of life and a culture and a people. And I think, you know, uh, and you, you mentioned this a little bit before we get started, so we'll kind of get a little deeper into this, but I think one of the big one of the big differences between like Hitchens and uh, and and uh, uh, Carl Benjamin was that I, I guess maybe Hitchens thought that the way of life could continue or that there was no cost for leaving the geographic region of his ancestors as where Benjamin was specifically like, no, we're here. This is where I want my children to be raised. It matters to me. It's not there. You know, we're not just moving somewhere else and and fundamentally changing the way we live and the people around us and the land around us so that, you know, we don't have to deal with difficulty. We're going to be here. We're going to be part of this. And that's going to be essential part of who we are and who my children will be. And I think that's something that not enough people understand when they say, oh, just move. It's, it'll be fine. Hmm. Yeah, Oren, that's, uh, this is where it gets a bit controversial, not in a, in a sense that YouTube is going to do anything to you, but in a controversial way, it gets emotionally controversial because it is a difficult decision for many people. I mean, I come from a, a culture that is now being very negatively affected by a very high immigration rate. A lot of Afrikaners are immigrating to other countries and have been for a long time. But there is a critical question here that needs to be uh, addressed or a critical perspective rather that needs to be looked at a lot of a lot of people that advocate moving like mr hitchens um will often have a bias towards just looking at all the benefits of moving but when they are asked and they will pretty much just uh, uh, in passing mention the the cost and say yeah of course it's not going to be all uh, sunshine and roses in some vague passing comment but they don't really get into the the real dark side of the real implications of, of moving. Like I said, as I mentioned earlier, 
one of the heavy costs is the fact that your children will not grow up sharing your identity. Let's take an Afrikaner, for example. If an Afrikaner like me were to immigrate to Australia, to Canada, to the United States, my children will be growing up as young Americans, Canadians, or Australians. They will not speak Afrikaans if they are very young. If they are born there, they will definitely not speak Afrikaans as their first language. Um, even if I do everything within my power to raise them in Afrikaans, my language, uh, they will not marry another Afrikaner in the United States or Australia, uh, except if I'm an incredibly cruel parent and say that they're only allowed to marry another Afrikaner in that country. It's almost certain my the next generation will be Americans, Australians, Canadians, whatever. They're not going to be Afrikaners. They're not going to have a connection to the Boer War. They're not going to have a connection to the Great Trek. They're not going to have a connection to the Afrikaner identity. They, are, they will have a new identity. Now, for many people, that's not a big deal. That's fine. I'm not judging anyone for that. For me, it's too high a cost. For me, it's my ancestors have been here. I'm ninth generation. My ancestors have been here since 1688. My ancestors have been in South Africa or Southern Africa longer than the United States has been a country. They've gone through wars and treks and a lot of trials and tribulations, and they're still here. Um, and uh, for me to move now, especially to the, especially to move to the Anglosphere, would be a, a very big, uh, a strange thing if I were to tell my ancestors this is what it's come to. Um, mm. You fought against the British Empire, and your uh, descendant is now moving to the center of it. Um, but yeah, that's 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 uh, a different uh, different topic. The the main thing, and I've written extensively about this, but in in Afrikaans, because like I said, the whole immigration question is a very sensitive but also important debate within the Afrikaner community. And for me, it's very simple. It's all about what costs are you willing to bear, and those costs when you move are not material costs. They are immaterial costs. They are costs that you can't, like I said, put a price on. They're not costs that you can quantify. They are costs that your, your ancestors understood very well. My ancestors understood them very well. But uh, if you're willing to make those costs, we uh, take those costs where you're at, you're, the people that come after you, your um, descendants don't share your identity or culture or your heritage, that's fine. I'm not willing to uh, to take up that uh, that cost. And uh, there's a, a good example again from my own history or the Afrikaners' history that uh, that demonstrates this. That and that's the fact that the majority of my ancestors are French Huguenots, and they also moved for a specific reason. The French Huguenots moved because they were being persecuted in their homeland. So they a lot of them moved to South Africa to continue practicing their religion. They didn't move to preserve their French identity. They moved to, to preserve their religious identity, to be able to still practice their religion and worship their God. And the reason is, well, the, the result is that uh, nobody in South Africa speaks French anymore, has any connection to France, but uh, we're, all, we're still Christian. Um, I don't know. I can't string a sentence together in French. I only know omelette du fromage, and uh, that's about it. Uh, but when it comes to my uh, my religion, I'm still uh, I'm still a Protestant, uh, just as my French Huguenot ancestors were. So they succeeded. They were able to ensure that the, the that their descendants were still 
able to practice their religion, but they didn't move to preserve their French language or their French identity. Because that would be in their time, they would have known that would be preserved in France. So that's not a big deal. They, the identity, even if they were to lose their identity, they would always be Frenchmen and French in France. So that just demonstrates that point of you. I think the critical question here is the reason for moving. Are you moving to give your children a better opportunity to give you and your family more security? To these are all noble goals. I mean, I can't knock any of them. But you should also, or are you moving or staying to preserve your identity or to practice your religion or many of those things that you can't put a price or a quantity on? And it's a difficult question. It's not, it's something, like I said, it's in South Africa, very sensitive and um, controversial debate. It gets, it can get very heated. Um, but again, I think it is because it is dealing with things that are very deep. It's dealing with things that, that, not willing to admit that uh, this all is about uh, matters as deep as identity and your existential uh, existential uh, issues. Your subconscious understands that it is, and that's why it's such an inf uh, a provocative and emotional debate. Because your your subconscious and deep down, you know what's at stake, even if you're not really uh, willing to to admit it uh, openly at at that point. The standoff at the border is heating up between Texas Governor Greg Abbott and the federal government. Politicians will never let a crisis go to waste. We have been invaded. The crisis is being used by Republicans as a photo op by the Democrats to expand their voting base. More than 85% of everybody reaching the border is coming in. That's the definition of an open border. Just down the road, you can get in no problem, no Humvees, no armed guards. What people don't realize is there's a way around everything. The Blaze Originals team traveled to the Texas border, ground zero of the most controversial news story of 2024. With some experts estimating over 4 million border crossings in 2023 alone, we embedded with the Take Our Border Back convoy to investigate. What if the entire narrative you thought you knew was a lie? Go watch the real story of Texas versus the feds and how the elites use the border crisis against us by visiting realbordercrisis.com. And use code TEXAS for $30 off an annual subscription to Blaze TV. Now, I'm interested, and obviously this dynamic might be very different in South Africa, but it is a dynamic that I think plays out in both America and Britain. So maybe you can tell me if, if there's a mm. similar one there. I think a lot of this for people is generational. Um, I think that a lot of the previous generations in both America and the UK felt like like they were doing fine or maybe some of them realized that something was wrong and like Hitchens they pushed back but they weren't really effective in it and now that the, the perhaps the tipping point has come so many people of that generation you know kind of the boomerish generation or the the late gen x they look at it and they say well i did my part and it didn't work and so there's just no solution now as opposed where it's to where it's the young, I think, who see this as something that has to change. They're the ones saying, no, we can't just sit back and say the game is done. This is over. We have to find ways forward. And so I wonder if, again, it could be very different in South Africa, but is there is there a generational aspect to this as well? Hmm. In South Africa, not as, in my experience, not as clearly. In South Africa, mm -hmm. there's more of a 
there's more of a, a, a heritage or background aspect to it. So if you grew up in a household that didn't really instill values or a, a sentimental nature or appreciation for your culture or a, a, a pride or a appreciation for being a, a Boer or for your heritage or uh, taking pride and uh, uh, taking uh, or many positive emotions from your identity and your identity is very important to you. If you grow, grew up in that type of household, then in my experience, those types of people are a lot more connected uh, to Africa uh, and would rather stay here, even if things get tough, to give their children that opportunity as well. Because um, there are things that are, like I said earlier, keep getting back to that. There are things that you can't quantify. There are things that... Uh, I mean, uh, I wrote about this in a recent piece for the European Conservative as well, where if you compare Africa to Europe or the Western world, I mean, there's a lot of security and material prosperity in the West, but it's also being ravaged by uh, mental health catastrophes and a struggle to find meaning in monotonous modern, modern life. Uh, many youths of identity. And um, the thing is, it's, it doesn't really happen in, uh, in, in places where people have a strong sense of identity. Uh, when you have a strong sense of identity, there's something that roots you. There's something that you uh, can stand on some solid ground, even if things around you are, uh, are quite tough. And um, I think Samuel Huntington actually put it best where, I mean, he wrote that very uh, seminal and uh, very uh, inspirational and uh, uh, a prophetic essay back in 1997 called The West and the Rest. Um, and uh, in that essay, he says that uh, in the post-Cold War world, the most important distinctions among people are not ideological, political, economic. They are cultural. People and nations are attempting to answer the most basic question humans can face. And that question is, who are we? And they are answering that question in the traditional way by reference to the things that mean most to them. So that again comes back to that point of you have to personally ask yourself what is most important to you. That's going to vary from person to person. You can't really prescribe that to any specific person that these are the things that you have to value. You're going to have to ask yourself genuinely deep down what are the things that at your core are form a part of you and that you can't just uh, throw away. And um, that's important because... Uh, if Huntington is right and that our time is going to be defined by quests and uh, quests for identity, quests for community, um, that we have uh, boatloads of here in my community here in Southern Africa, as dysfunctional as it may be. Me and my colleagues, for example, know exactly who we are, where we come from and where we're going. Um, and uh, that, uh, I mean, I'm here. Uh, if, if what I was telling you here, Oren, if I was just LARPing or if I was just... Uh, pretending. Uh, I think that would be a very dangerous LARP if I'm here in yeah. uh, in Africa. <laughs> I mean, right. I'm kind of a, I'm kind of the proof of my own theory or the proof of my own convictions that I'm still here sitting in a rolling blackout. <laughs> well, I wonder. Do you think is it a function of affluence and ease, the 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 inability to maintain and find meaning through identity? Do you think that's a major component in kind of eroding that? It's interesting that you mentioned that because just the other day I read about, um, so there was this, uh, this uh, cartoon strip in the, in the newspaper in the 1950s, in the Afrikaans newspaper about the Afrikaners. And uh, in that, that comic strip, it was telling the story of 
So you have this this people here, the Afrikaners at the southern tip of Africa, and the devil wants to destroy them. So the devil tries first by um, uh, putting them under uh, imperial administration. That doesn't work. He wages two major wars against them. Uh, doesn't work. He makes them go through a small civil war and a rebellion. And then he says, fine, I'll use my most powerful weapon. I'll give them prosperity and see if they can survive that. Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, I think that's, that's very relevant to, to your question in regards to where, do, where does a lot of this come from? I think it comes from comfort. It comes from convenience, the convenience and prosperity, uh, but specifically convenience is the devil's most favorite tool of temptation to, to have people give up their most, most cherished, uh, cultural treasures, their most, uh, uh, their most foundational sovereignty. They will give up for comfort for a little bit of just uh, uh, enjoyment or pleasure or comfort. Uh, it's, it, it, it that does definitely seem to be a connection. So that always just, that stuck with me when I read that of, uh, can your people survive prosperity? Well, time will tell. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, a huge question, of course, here in America as well. And I guess, you know, one of the, you want to, I'll just go ahead and read the line because I really enjoy this line from your piece here. Uh, again, if you guys haven't read it, it's over at IM1776. Uh, really, really excellently done. Uh, but uh, let me see here. Where'd it go? Um, uh, now I've lost it. I had it marked right here. Uh, it was the one about it was one about uh, the times in which you you could have material. Uh, here you go. The benefits of living in good times is that you have ample opportunities to live a comfortable life, and the advantage of living in hard times is that you have plenty of opportunities to live a great life. And I think that also really dovetails with something else that you said in that piece about the cowardice of asking your children to fight this for you later, right? To to put this mm. aside. And when you feel like you have this prosperity and things will be fine, you feel like the future of your children is secured or the future is in general secured and you don't really need to worry or sacrifice on its behalf. But that's exactly it feels like when it's not secure, when things could so easily fall apart, like you said, that's the greatest temptation. And just, you know, the need, to, you have to care about something even if, you think it might, you, you, even if you think times are good, because when you don't, that's when things will get particularly difficult. Right. And uh, that's that's uh, actually a conclusion. That line that you just read from my piece is actually a conclusion that I've that I've come to just from seeing the contrast bef between the province where I used to live and the province where I live now. So I grew up in the Western Cape, which is uh, much better off in regards to uh, uh, job opportunities and uh, service delivery and uh, security than uh, many of the other provinces. Um, and now that I live here in, in Gauteng, uh, it's a lot different. Here, in, uh, here it's uh, <laughs> when it comes to uh, service delivery, security, it's a whole different ballgame. And I realized uh, there was a, a good example of it is with neighborhood watches. So in the Western Cape, it's a lot has changed uh, recently. The Western Cape has actually uh, woken up now and started to take their security a lot more seriously. But back in the day when I was growing up, uh, things like neighborhood watches weren't really that big of a deal in the Western Cape. They were things that people almost did like a hobby, but not really out of necessity. But when I came here to Pretoria in Gauteng, uh, here it's a lot different. Here people don't do 
neighborhood watch because it's like a hobby they do it because it's a necessity so you get it's not just a bunch of uh people that are bored that are driving around uh it's people that are very serious about their community because they realize if they don't do it nobody's going to do it and then they, their family and their community is at stake so a lot of people always in in the us and in europe i see especially specifically young people i see lamenting the fact that where are all these great men where are all these heroes where are all these um great figures that we read about in history well if the temperature isn't high enough and the the pressure isn't high enough those people don't have to come to the fore it's almost like a a certain type of pressure or a certain type of uh temperature where then the those people rise to the surface almost in like a chemical reaction it's if you're living in a in a society where the emergence of great and uh, courageous men is not really necessary then those people those men will, will not come to the fore so it's not surprising that in places where it's still going very well, that you're not seeing uh, this type of man or this type of person coming to the fore. That only happens when times get tough. So to get back to that line, yes, uh, in good times, you have the opportunity to live a, a comfortable life and an ample opportunity. And in the hard times, you have ample opportunity to live a great life. In hard times, you're also going to have a lot of opportunity to witness great men and women come to the fore, great heroic figures around you. That's also going to be one of the things that you will notice during tough times. And uh, don't don't get me wrong, uh, what you're going through in the United States is not hard times. Uh, no, no matter how much uh, many black pulls you take, you're still living in very, very comfortable, nice times. Uh, you can talk to me again when... Uh, you've had only three hours of electricity a day for a year then we can uh, then we can start talking about hard times and when uh, you you hear about people down the street uh, people breaking into their house or and uh, violently assaulting them or hearing about massive unrest where dozens of trucks are being burned and people are being assaulted and attacked just on the highway because there's a massive unrest there things can get a lot worse and you have to keep that in mind um i think there's a lot of danger specifically in western countries for getting too ahead of yourselves and regarding oh now the tough times are here the hard times are here this is the hard times that they're talking about the good times are gone none nation is not a something that happens overnight it's something that happens over decades it's not something that you're going to wake up just as an empire doesn't fall overnight uh so too does hard times not just uh, appear on your door one morning uh it, at your door one morning when you wake up it's something that slowly and insidiously seeps into your environment and into your uh into your community and it's it starts with little things it starts with graffiti that's not being cleaned it starts with a a cemetery that was vandalized it starts with an 80 year old woman getting mugged in the street that's the the first little signs of hard times but it's very small and very subtle and you won't notice until it's upon you but like i said it doesn't happen overnight but one day it will feel like it happened overnight because it really does catch you off guard yeah i think you're right to point out that you know we're we're only at the very 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 beginning of things here in the united states there's still incredible material wealth and and safety comparatively to situations that many, uh, yourself included, are in. I do hope, you know, but that's one of the reasons we have this conversation, right? The, one of the reasons we're talking to someone from the future is, <laughs> is in hopes that it might change, you know, because we are seeing those things, you know, with those, those little things that you're talking about, those signs, the, the, those indicators that do tell you that the, that the 
thing what's approaching we they are here right we do have unchecked riots in the streets we do have cities that simply allow you know mass uh, theft without any penalty we do have uh, you know police unable to arrest criminals due to political restraints you know we we do have these things starting we do see you know uh, i believe it uh, I'm trying to think as wells fargo just announced that it's going to pare back its its mortgage lending except for minorities here in in the in the united states you know we mm. do see this this deterioration that has occurred that you know favored favored groups unpoliced crime we we see this and so mm. it's not it's not something that it is here it's it's nowhere near as advanced but but it is here and so i think many people are hoping you know that there are options that there are opportunities that there are ways to advert you know some of this and so that's kind of the second part i wanted to talk to you about because mm -hmm. i know a big part of what you do is being involved in an organization that is about the trench digging right and and so now that we kind of have talked about you know when and why you might dig trenches i want to talk a little more about what that actually looks like because so many people in america are looking at the system and saying this can't be solved. Uh, the, the institutions are redeemable. What do we do now? And I think you're living in a situation where the state institutions are already well beyond that, but you guys are looking at alternatives in order to protect your community and ensure the well-being of, of communities like that. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the work uh, with your your organization, the work that they do, and these alternative institutions, and you know that might be able to help people through difficult times like that when they're trench digging. Hmm. So, what uh, the organization that I work for is called Afri Forum, which is a community-based solutions organization uh, and also a civil rights organization. Not in the. It's strange in in South Africa when when you mention civil rights, Americans think of. Uh, very much specifically in their context, but mm -hmm. uh, South Africa has its own context surrounding that. But anyway, um, so we have 300,000 donating members. So it's not just a, a little button that you go click on the website and you become a member like liking a Facebook page. It's you have to give a minimum amount of a donation. So you have 300,000 of those. Uh, actually more now, I think 310 as of uh, this week. Uh, 310,000 and uh, we've established many things we've established 150 neighborhood watches all across the country uh, farm watches as well um, we've developed uh, emergency service uh, emergency support services and we have uh, more than 155 uh, AfriForum branches all across the country and these branches do everything from uh, painting street signs filling potholes um planting trees planting community uh, vegetable gardens to help people in their community that need it um and a lot more we've got our own publishing company film and documentary production company own theater and uh, that we're just one branch or one uh, uh part of a much larger solidarity movement so the solidarity movement uh, has many other organizations as part of it in a network and uh, these organizations focus on other things. So they focus on, for example, uh, uh, helping the hunt, helping hand focuses on helping people in the community that need uh, assistance, like uh, the children that don't have uh, uh, 
food or uh, funds to go to school and they uh, need uh, the type of support. Um, but also the, the solidarity movement has built, for example, uh, well, firstly, it's established uh, Academia, which is a private uh, tertiary education institution. And then also Soltech, which is a world-class technical college campus that we've built for, I think, 350 million rand, which was a, a large part of that was just through donations from our membership base and those donations were all 10 rand donations so they were 10 rand is not even a dollar so um the the largest donation that someone gave was a dollar towards um well, less than a dollar towards building a world-class technical college that uh, uh enforces and uh is uh afrikaans seeing as the tertiary education uh, the state-based tertiary education, the universities are phasing out Afrikaans. Afrikaans is under full assault and attack at, on uh, South African campuses. Um, students are being prohibited on South African campuses from even speaking Afrikaans in public if they live in a residence, like a, a, in Afrikaans or in South Africa, you call it a res, almost like a hostel where a bunch of students stay. It's um, They're really trying to force Afrikaans out of the, the public campuses and therefore we're building through community-based initiatives private campuses so but there's a critical difference what's happening here it's not the just libertarian line of well the just the free market will solve it it's something different it's the community will solve it it's not just leave it up to some corporation will have a profit motive and they'll start uh, a, uni a private university that will protect your culture that's that's not what's happening we are as a community organizing around a nexus and then uh, using those funds that we gather to build what we need cultural infrastructure so we're not just leaving it up to the market we are creating a de facto reality and then the euro reality will follow um that's that's the thing when it comes to our model is that we are building a reality that can't be ignored we're building a reality and then the laws will have to adapt to it that's that's how it works but but yeah in the in the end uh afri forum and the solidarity movement is probably the biggest proverbial trench digging uh operation on the entire african continent definitely the largest organization of its type in the entire southern hemisphere with 300,000 members but there's something very important that needs to be understood and that is we can't we nothing that we do can be uh, achieved without the community and our culture and people that share our values and our vision coming together and doing their part it's not some billionaire swooping in to come save you. Our organization is not funded by Africana billionaires or by corporations or by the government or by anything. We don't get massive donations. We have a membership base of hundreds of thousands, and those people give, in dollar terms, probably 3 or $5 a month. And we use that money to then build all these institutions and to build all these solutions and to fill thousands of potholes and to establish 150 neighborhood watches that get very special training in regards to being able to keep their community safe. And this is the only way, but this is what you're going to have to understand is firstly, you can't just say, well, we'll just leave it up to the market. You're going to have to organize actively around a common vision and an ideal. You can't just say, well, if uh, the if the demand is there, the the, the corporates will, will will fill the void. But then, secondly, to rally around, you can't just say 
the profit motive is going to is going to result in this it's it's a very the solidarity movement is very clearly a reaction to an existential question and an existential threat it's not a for profit thing that just happened because some africana billionaire saw a, a gap in the market yeah i'm really glad i'm so glad that you brought up that point because i think it's really essential for a lot of people in america american conservatives especially understand you know there there's a lot of faith in the market and there's a lot of faith in business and understandable because so many you know conservatives built their you know middle middle or upper middle class existence out of the business community and so i think it's great you know i just had uh matthew peterson on from uh new founding yesterday because because i kind of wanted this week to be a little solutions based episode or that's week good, that's and, and 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 you know he's talking about business solutions and networking and alternative mm. economies and all those things are great because you you need you know funding has to happen and people need jobs people need that kind of stuff and i think it's essential but i'm really mm. glad that you brought up that that's not the only piece that if you mm. strictly focus on the business you strictly focus on the market you won't have the organizing principle because these large you know multinational corporations they make money by dissolving a lot of this stuff right like they, they actually make money by making you know by by homogenizing a lot of this stuff and er erasing the interests of different groups and i think that making sure that people understand that if you want to protect your culture that means an active participation by people involved in the culture not just sitting around right. and waiting for some billionaire i think that's really essential yeah yeah and uh, i mean if it's just purely a for-profit motive i mean then you build your your perfect institution and then some guy just comes along and says, i'll give you double the value uh, and I'll, I'll just buy this mm. from you and then of course if it's just profit you sell it but uh, our campus for example that we built if some trillionaire or billionaire from somewhere says i want to buy this campus and turn it into a world-class uh, uh institution english institution that will serve people from all across the world uh we won't take that offer even if he offers 10 times the value that's not we're not going to take that offer because we're it's built for a different reason it's built for a reason and i keep getting back to it a reason that you can't put a monetary value on but what i think is also very important there was uh, an example from what happened in uh, uh, something that happened last i think it was last year in south africa where there was an opinion piece from one of these typical i think our version of david french here in south africa he wrote a piece and he said um it's all well and good that what really need is a afri forum and solidarity for everyone like one organization that represents everyone and then uh, my one colleague summed it up very well and he says well if we represent everyone we won't represent anyone right the whole point of afri forum and solidarity is that we represent uh, that we are working towards a very specific goal we are working and we are that we have a mission that we are working towards an ideal and that we represent our members we don't just represent some vacuous idea of like the nation or the humanity or one of those types of concepts that just we we just want to serve the globe we just want to serve the world we it's 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 that doesn't work if you try to be something for everyone you end up being something for nobody then you just become this uh, 
ship without a captain. But because you're, if you if you load a ship with a bunch of people that want to go to every location in the world, that ship's not going to get to any of those locations. But if you load that ship with just people that want to get to a specific location, that you're going to be damn sure that that ship's going to arrive at that location as fast as possible. So I think that's a very important point when it comes to your mission. But there's also something I, I think just a. Uh, uh, something that i thought of now that it's, that's also important on that specific topic and that is the the implications of your actions so or the implications of your projects and everything that you attempt if if you for example think it's very important this gets back to the core question of like a time whether to move or whether to stay let's take the example of and this is something that's in our circles has been talked about a lot of like and, and you reference it very specifically sometimes like the the need to win or the the wanting to win but there's a critical question that needs to be answered and that is are we willing to give up everything to win or are there some things that just can't be forfeited and uh, it pretty much means that we forfeit our soul in order to win like that uh, very um, uh, famous uh, verse of uh, what would it profit a man if he were to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul and i mm -hmm. think that's one of the things that needs to be the needs to be discussed robustly and honestly is that if you are willing to give up your core values in order to win if you're willing to give up the very things that make you and your community and your people what they are if you're willing to give up those things in order to win, then how valuable are they really? What message are you sending to people? If your whole thing is, how can you expect people to stand up for your values and for your principles and the things that you hold dearly if you send at the same time simultaneously a message to them, I want you to stand up for these things, but also we're willing to give uh, to forfeit and sacrifice them in order to win. Points of moving or staying you can't expect people to stand up uh you can't expect people to stand up for their community or be proud of their heritage or their identity and that's and if you you can't expect young people to uh to view their identity and their heritage and their community as things worth fighting and sacrificing for if you also tell them but you should also be able to give up those things um if the going gets a little tough um you can't have both either these things are integral parts of who you are your heritage your identity either they are integral parts of who you and your family and your community are or they're not if 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 you don't see them as as that important if you don't see them as integral i'm going to be very hard and frank then your culture and your identity are just your hobbies then being american is just your hobby if they are not integral, if you're not willing to fight for them or to sacrifice them, then your identity is just a hobby. Yeah, no, I, th I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think the key is whether it's looking at a positive vision or whether it's looking at winning. Whenever you're trying to mm. understand either of those concepts, they can only exist if you understand the people they are in service to, right? If, if you're going to create a positive vision or you're going to win on behalf of a group, the only way it, it can happen is if you understand the values and the, you know, what does winning look like for a group mm. in, involves the continuation of its values and its culture. 
And so if you win by decimating every bit of that, then yeah, you, you may have won nothing in, in the process, which is a really essential part of you know, to keep it, keep in mind. I have one more question before we get to some super chats that are starting to stack up here. Mm-hmm. One of the things, whenever I talk about parallel institutions, um, that I hear from people is, well, eventually they'll just come for those institutions, right? Eventually Mm -hmm. they'll just come and they'll take whatever you built and they'll destroy it. And then you'll have done nothing. What do you say to people who say, well, there's no point in building these parallel institutions because eventually at the end of the day, the state will just come and they'll, they'll demand them and then you'll have, you'll have nothing Mm. out of it. Well, the, the, the hate of the solidarity movement, Flip Bice, or as one of my mates calls him, Flip Beist, as the as always as a very short answer for me when I asked him that, I asked him that very same question uh, a few years ago. And he told me the only thing that's a bigger risk than building these institutions is not building them at all. The, mm. the only thing that is a bigger certainty of defeat uh, would be to just actually just accept defeat in that moment at least we are attempting at least there we are at the the odds are stacked against us there's a lot of risks and uh, dangers in in yes we are trying we are we are building towards something because that's what our ancestors did and was successful our ancestors the boers when they took on the british empire i mean you could have just said well it's lost we we can't just stand up against the biggest empire on the planet but they did um the, the boers when they when they trekked into the unknown they could have just said well there's no way we can survive out there we we just have to stay here and, and live under british rule and but they went on that trek and they survived and they built two republics so it's it's a difficult question. It's an, it, it is definitely something that can't be ignored. It, <laughs> I see one of my one of my mates there is uh, is n- naming him by his nickname. Um, it you have to you have to realize, uh, as Flip says, that um, the only risk that is greater than trying is the risk of not doing at all. That is the biggest risk that you can take, because then defeat is almost certain. So it is. It is definitely, uh, it is definitely a question that we often ask ourselves a lot. But then at the same time, uh, I don't think if uh, if everyone, for example, in the solidarity or, or movement or an Afri forum, uh, if we all thought that defeat is certain, I don't think any of us would be doing as uh, Cortez did and uh, burning our ships, basically. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if if defeat and uh, death was certain, I don't think we would be trapping ourselves here. Um, trappings may be a strong word, but uh, anchoring ourselves here, I should rather say. Um, I mean, technically, uh, if you really look at it, uh, if, if I took all of my meager possessions that I have and I sell everything that I have, I take out all my savings that I have, I probably could uh, immigrate to some better materially better off country and live not very luxuriously there but uh, i would be out of south africa and africa i'd be uh, uh, away from here but uh, would that really be the a better life would that really be um uh, i always think about personally i think if my ancestors were to see what uh, if i were to do something like that and i were to go back in time and tell my ancestors this is what it's come to they would they would not look at me very approvingly because my ancestors if i were to go back in time i'd probably meet them in some cave hiding out during the anglo-boer war or i would 
meet them during the Great Depression or I would meet them working in a mine. I mean, my great grandfather during the Great Depression had to sell his farm and to go work on the mines because he didn't have he couldn't keep the farm anymore just to to support his family. And uh, he did that. He he did that sacrifice. But uh, if he didn't do that sacrifice, I would probably not be here. So my ancestors have gone through much worse. And that's maybe a final thought on that question. Yeah. Specifically Afrikaners, but also Westerners today. But our ancestors have gone through a lot worse. They've taken a lot worse gambling odds than us. Uh, our mm -hmm. odds are not great, but they're not as bad as some of the odds that our ancestors have gambled on. And, uh, and one. So, yeah, just to finish again, I think that I always just go back to that quote from Flip where Mr. Bass said that uh, the only risk greater than doing something would be to do nothing. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, fortune favor favors the bold, right? If you, mm. if you go out there and take action, even if your chances were smaller before, they'll be greater than they were if you had done nothing at all. Right. All right. Well, let's go ahead and take a look at a few of these uh, super chats here real quick. Uh, we've got Conquest Theory here for $10. Thank you very much, sir. He says the fact that the U.S. has yet to reach the point of South Africa and their digging trenches means we should, too. Winning may not occur in our lifetime, but we can turn the tide. And yeah, you know, think about those quotes. Uh, you know, there, there's that famous one from G.K. Chesterton. You know, Rome wasn't, uh, uh, people didn't love Rome because it was great. Rome was great because men loved her, mm -hmm. right? And if you're, if you're not willing to make that investment now, then, you know, you're like, like you said in your piece that your children will suffer for it. And so, you know, like, like you said, America is pretty far away from South Africa right now. And then that, that's a good thing for us, but you know, mm -hmm. being willing to make those sacrifices now might, you know, increase the chances that the, your children don't have to uh, endure that. And that's kind of worth mm -hmm. a, pretty much everything at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. And just to uh, respond to that as well, seeing as um, I think uh, what's relevant to Conquest Theory Super Chat is uh, something that I wrote about recently is that, and that's specifically also the value of place. So we've been talking a lot about identity, but also specifically to zero in a little bit onto place. And that is the fact that, so you were talking about uh, Chesterton's quotes, and I think that's perfectly demonstrated through the fact that we live now in the, I would almost say the the, the mobile age where you can live anywhere you want and you can work mobile through uh, the internet. And uh, a lot of people, I mean, you probably have seen this phenomenon. Um, a lot of people are choosing now to go live in these idyllic, destinations uh because they these desirable little hideaway towns or whatever they're escaping the cities going to live in some little romantic town and they just work from home but the thing here is and this is critical to understand is that with those people that move to these places their top priority is to live in a to work in an office with a postcard view or to live a life where they don't have to fight for their mm. community they move or act or always moving to places which those people that live there currently, those people have invested their lives in those places. Uh, they've loved dearly, the, they love dearly those places. Their ancestors have lived there for generations. They've been in those little towns and those beautiful little places through thick and thin. The reason why those places that you're moving to that are so beautiful and serene and idyllic, these trad little towns, 
The reason that they look like that is the fact that the, the people there didn't move. The people there have been working and investing yeah. and preserving those towns and their identities for hundreds of years, generations. And now a lot of these Johnny come lately's are coming to live there because they are escaping the, the city hell holes and to come live with a postcard view. But they're picking the fruits of intergenerational responsibilities and sacrifices that they and their ancestors didn't make. And they are oblivious to these intergenerational sacrifices and responsibilities and traditions that made those little places great that they're fleeing to. So most concerning is that there's there's little to no guarantee that these new residents that are moving there from worse places will stay and fight when similar challenges arise in those places, which made them leave their previous home in the first place. You just become a prosperity nomad. So you just move to every place as long as the going's well there, as long as it's nice and beautiful, you live there. But then when the going gets tough, when the same challenges arise, when the water rises again, you just move to higher ground again. And everyone just gets trapped in this globalist mentality of the world is your oyster. So you just move to higher ground every time the water rises until one day, the very last day, all of mankind is just you're just uh, trapped in in one little spot where there's no more place to run to everything is gone everything is underwater there's just one little island left then there's nowhere to run to anymore and uh, you've you failed to build walls you failed to build dikes you failed to build what was necessary to stop the uh, the water from rising or to stop the rising tide you just kept fleeing uh, until the point where there's now no more ground to flee to so that's i think that quote from chesterton is very important the the fact that rome was great because people loved her those little places that people are fleeing to and those towns those aesthetic beautiful traditional towns that people are going to live in now are the way they are because of intergenerational sacrifices and responsibilities and unfortunately frankly the people most of the people going to live there just are completely oblivious to that fact yeah and th that's so important and this is just dominating america right now you know so much of america's system is federal and this is supposed to save us because each state can live in its own way and its own culture and, and make its own decisions in certain areas but what we're seeing is that red and rural america is simply being invaded by californians and new yorkers who are coming in and like you said just picking the fruits of these states that said no to all these things that their states you know wholeheartedly embraced and now when they arrive in texas or tennessee or florida they immediately of course like you said they don't have those values they don't care about them and so just by their presence they immediately start changing the the nature of those places all the housing prices skyrocket the people who live there in the first place can't live there anymore the the churn of the the people coming in completely changes that intergenerational investment that you're talking about and all of a sudden the places they flee to look exactly like the places they left from and uh, so, yeah, that and and the the COVID and the and the mobile uh, working option has only accelerated that phenomenon. So I think that that's a really essential observation. Yeah, we've got uh, Aura Post here for nine ninety nine. Thank you very much, sir. Catching this late, but just wanted to say that Ernst is a real mensch. Absolutely, is the catabolic breakdown of South Africa inevitable? Uh, or is there any reality of recapturing governance over the whole nation? Uh, let me answer that very quickly and very briefly. Uh, 
I don't think uh, Afrikaners have any interest or any uh, anything to gain from controlling the the government apparatus. Um, mm. The, the the thing that happened when uh, during apartheid when Afrikaners were uh, in control of the government apparatus was it just degenerated our culture into state dependence. We we just got to a point where everything that the state was doing or everything that uh, we didn't want to do, the state did for us. So we didn't have to preserve our language. The state did that for you. you. Don't have to raise your children morally. The state did that for you. You don't have to preserve your monuments and your heritage. The state will do that for you. You don't have to start businesses and uh, uh, create uh, jobs. The state will create the jobs that we need up until the very point you lose control of that state and the state becomes an active antagonistic force against your people, then, <laughs> then you're high and dry. And now suddenly, then you realize the dark situation that you yourself had gotten yourself into. Now you have to start uh, uh, pre preserving your, your heritage from scratch. You have to fight again to preserve your language. You have to start building your own schools again because now the schools are under the administration of a government that actively wants to destroy your language and is antagonistic towards your culture. The very same apparatus that you used in the previous, uh, uh, in the previous generation to preserve your, your culture and your heritage and your language is now actively being used to destroy your language and your, your, your culture and your community so that's the that's the lesson that we've learned is that you can't you can't save your community through the state leviathan we, you can't keep chasing this philosophy of if only we get control of the leviathan then everything will be fine again like no there are costs and benefits to everything the cost of controlling the leviathan is that you lose all of you forget all of your abilities of being able to run your own communities yourself and to be sovereign in your own community you give everything over to the state it's just a natural uh progression of what happens so yeah to to uh, get back to the question or to the comment well it's, it, it is a question um i don't think that's something that afrikaners wish for the 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 the, the loss of state control uh, was devastating for Afrikaners culturally, and uh, we had to start from scratch again. But it was a very important lesson that we learned. And uh, now we are slowly taking things into our own hands again in regards to preserving our language, our culture, our way of life, our, our values. Uh, everything now is from grassroots level being preserved and rebuilt and uh, it, it's got our name on it now it's not a government that is uh, that's everything is not hinging on uh, on this big government that is uh, doing all of that because one day that can all just be taken away from you and then you're being left high and dry that's the lesson that we learned so i think that's uh, that's an important lesson that i think for americans specifically as well you should be careful that you don't just end up getting lost in the this chase to get control over the leviathan and, and without realizing that Riding the Leviathan is also not, uh, it also comes with its own major costs, uh, often insidious costs that you only realize after you get off again. All right, guys. Well, thank you for your questions and Ernst, thanks for coming in. It's been a great discussion. If people want to find, you know, the things you've written, follow you on Twitter, you know, check out what you're working on, where should they go? Well, they can uh, find me at uh, Conscious Caracal. That's on Twitter and on YouTube. Um, on YouTube, I have a channel where I interview specifically uh, guests that talk about topics pertaining to South Africa, but also in a broader sense, uh, topics that people abroad can learn from. 
And uh, then I also post and comment a lot on, on Twitter. So there's specifically those two platforms. And uh, yeah, it's basically that. Uh, thank you very much uh, for the opportunity, Oren. I think this is a, a topic that I think speaking to someone on the outside looking in as well helps me get new insights or come to new insights when it comes to uh, it's an ongoing debate. It's something that Afrikaners are struggling with, but struggle in a good and a negative sense. It's this weird duality where we are struggling constantly with should you give up your uh, your identity for a secure and prosperous future or are you only two or three generations down the line um but yeah i think what's what's also important just the final thought uh, to keep in mind is the fact that you're going to have to ask yourself um americans british uh, europeans germans whatever all of your listeners are going to have to ask themselves personally a question that is whether you are willing to go down in history as the weak link which was severed which has severed your great cultural chain connecting you to the past and the future are you going to be remembered as the first generation of your people who when faced with the existential challenges of your time answered that they the challenges are too great and too insurmountable i don't uh, I don't have have it in me to to say that I'm going to just give over to being saying fine. Uh, the challenges are too big, and I am willing to go down in history as the first generation to say that because I know I'm the I would be the first generation to say that because of the generations before me had said that the challenge the existential challenges of their time were too great. I would not be here today, so I refuse to be the first generation in that chain to sever it. And I think that's maybe the last question I would leave your audience with is they have to personally ask themselves, are they willing to be part of the, the, the first generation to say the challenges facing us in our time are too great. Uh, we're going to have to throw in the towel. That's it. Then you're going down in history as that guy. You're going down in history as the first generation to say that. Are you willing to do that? That's the question. No, a really powerful question. And even though, like you said, we're in very different places along that journey for that question, it is one that I think a lot of people have to face. So it's, it's definitely good to speak with people at different stages of that journey so we can better understand you know, the answer to it. So I, I appreciate it. Uh, Glow in the Dark here jumped in real quick. Wanted to get you before we go uh, uh, for $5. Thank you, sir. South of the U uh, USA understands we have a lot of Yankee gaslighters and corporations tearing down statues. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's very true. There's, like I said, the, you know, the, the Northern invasion of many of the red States is, is very real and it's got a very serious impact, but like Ernst said, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to decide, you know, the, that, that is going to exist no matter what. And you have to decide, are you going to be able to stand up for that? And more importantly, are you going to be able to form a community that's able to defend it outside of perhaps uh, you know, some of those failing institutions, which I think is is the most interesting thing uh, that uh, that many people like Ernst who are in kind of a little bit of a future situation can bring uh, some wisdom to for people like us who aren't quite there met yet, but might need to learn those lessons in advance. All right, guys. Well, thanks again. I appreciate all the questions. Ernst's a great guest. Always love having him on. Uh, thanks for coming by. And as always, we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>